Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley. And with us today is an author who has um, written a really interesting book. And Scott Russell Sanders is the author of more than 20 books of fiction, essays, and personal narrative, including Hunting for Hope, A Conservationist Manifesto, Dancing in Dreamtime, and Earthworks Selected Essays. His most recent book is The Way of Imagination, a reflection on healing and renewal in a time of social and environmental upheaval. But the book we're talking about today is Small Marvels um, Stories, and we'll get, we'll tell you a little bit more about what that is about. Scott Russell Sanders is based in Bloomington, Indiana. He's a distinguished professor emeritus, I probably said that wrong, of English at Indiana University and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And welcome to Writer's Voices, Scott. Thank you for the invitation, Monica. (laughs) And this book um, sounds a little bit different than some of your other books. Is that? It It is. It is. What makes Small Marvels different? Well, I'm best known, I suppose, as a writer of essays, and many of my essays have very solemn, sober, often uh, grim subjects, climate crisis, uh, extinction of species, war, cancer, uh, and all the various challenges that we we face as a species and also just as individuals. And so that's what I am writing about much of the time. But periodically, I need to take a break from the miseries and cruelties that we all read about in the news and many of us experience in our lives and neighborhoods. I need to take a break from that and remind myself of the human capacity for kindness and cooperation and parents loving children and married partners staying married and the, the human capacity for living peacefully and harmoniously in a relation to one another. And to do that, that is to remind myself of that, I pay periodic visits to this fictional family, the Mills family, who live in a fictional town in southern Indiana that I call Limestone. So the stories that are in Small Marvels were written over a 20-year period. And I, over that course of that time, I would periodically take a break from my dark subjects of the essays and visit with this family and write another chapter in their story. And all of the stories in the collection are about this same family, three generations living under one roof, a husband, wife, the three living grandparents and the four children all living under one roof in this town of limestone. And so the book is really a refuge for me from the dark subjects that I'm writing about much of the time. It also is a a book that allows me to be funny which I think I am in in my everyday life. But it's hard to be funny when you're writing about the climate crisis or war or racism or the various other human afflictions. Wow. Um, One of the things I was going to ask you was why you structured this as a book of connected stories rather than as a novel. And you've kind of answered that because – of the way it was written. And yet it wouldn't have been, it, it really is more, almost a novel. Well, the, we have, there's this term, as you know, that's applied to some books called novel in stories, and with the hyphens between in and stories. And sometimes it's just a way for publishers to pretend that they're giving you a novel because novels are more popular than collections of stories. And uh, sometimes, so it's 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 uh, not really a, a legitimate label. But in in the case of some books, it is. Uh, a famous example of that is Winesburg, Ohio, where you have a thread that goes through the whole book in terms of the central point of view character that you follow through the book. And in in this book, Small Marvels, 
I think, is legitimately a novel in stories, in that it has the same cast of characters in all the stories. They all take place in the same town, and they happen over the course of a single year. And during that year, you get the backstory about the how Gordon Mills, who's the husband of the family, and Mabel Mills, who's the wife, you get the backstory about how they met and came to be engaged. And then by the end of the story, they're, by the end of the collection, rather, within the same year, they're celebrating their 25th anniversary. And you get to see one or another of the children featured in different stories and one or another of the grandparents, the three grandparents featured in one of the stories. So I could have forced a plot, if you will, that ran from page one to page 220, but I didn't want to do that. And partly as you intuited, partly that's a function of how the book was composed as a series of pieces that I wrote while I was taking a break from other kinds of books. But partly it's because the book is episodic. Each each story, each tale, each each chapter, if you will, focuses on an event or some some peculiar thing that has happened in the life of this family or the life of their town. And one of the aspects of the book that I most enjoyed is that the peculiar happenings are never regarded by the characters as odd. They simply, especially Gordon Mills, they simply take them in stride and go with them. Uh, And it's a reminder, I suppose, to the reader that we take for granted all sorts of things in our daily lives that are, if we thought about them, (laughs) miraculous, astounding. Uh, Anyone who has spent time with a a young child, a parent or a grandparent who spent time with a young child, realizes that for the child, let's say a toddler who's just learning to walk, everything in the world is new and everything is fascinating and puzzling and intriguing. And only because as we grow, we become habituated to things such as our heart beating in our chest or our breathing or a leaf on a tree, we become accustomed to those things. And after a while, we lose the sense of how amazing everything around us and within (laughs) us actually is. Well, you know, we were talking before we started recording about technology and, you know, the pros and cons of of, um, some of our modern technology. But when, when you think about the things that we now take for granted in Tech, in terms of the technology that we use, that it, it puts me in mind of that, um, was it Mark Twain who wrote The Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's yeah. Court? Yeah, where, you know, where he was able to, you know, take more modern technology in a way and, and use it to astound the people of that time. Just yeah. things that we totally take for granted were, would have been astounding to me as a ch- as a young person because it just was impossible oh for certain my <laughs> wife and i my wife and i got married right out of college and went overseas immediately i had a scholarship that took me to a british university for my phd and we were there for 4 years we came home once to help my parents move from louisiana to oklahoma and in those 4 years we called home twice long distance it was practically a week's rent for us to make a phone call across the ocean and so we didn't we we wrote letters and we also recorded made recordings on tapes not cassettes (laughs) tapes which we mailed back and forth. We would we would record, we would be talking about what we're doing in our lives, and we'd package it up, and we'd mail it to our parents, and it would get there 10 days later, and they would listen to it, and then they would record one and send it back. And so within a lifetime, I mean, now students on my campus, students, young people you know, including probably some grandchildren you know, have things in their pocket which enables them to call anywhere in the world uh, without worrying about the cost because they've 
you know, uh, as part of just the leasing of the phone. Right, right. So that's one kind of one kind of marvel, and there are many others <laughs> we could mention. Certainly, humans have have done astounding things. I happen to be fascinated by cosmology, by the scientific study of the history and evolution of the universe. And right now, there is this device, as you well know, up in about a million miles from us, called the Webb Space Telescope. And it is taking images, it is, it, is, it is sending us images of galaxies that formed within the first few million years of the birth of the universe. And you can look at it on your screen. I can look at it right here in my house in southern Indiana. And it is astounding, that, that technology. And yet... It's equally astounding to me that there is a little bird that weighs a few ounces, a hummingbird, that lives in our yard and comes to our feeder and that can fly backwards <laughs> and that has a, has a heart that will, can beat as, as many as uh, 300 times a minute or even faster. And that little tiny bird can fly and will fly if it's lucky, from here to Mexico to spend the winter. Now, nature has produced that creature, you know, through the evolutionary process. And I guess one of the things I hope for the reader of this book, I hope they're entertained. I always want to engage the reader and give them a reason for reading just as when I take up a book and I'm eager to read it, I'm I'm rewarded by the experience, and I want to provide that for my readers. But one of the things I hope they would come away with, or, or just even as they read, is to look up from the page and just look at something in their world. Maybe it's a human artifact, like a watch or a cell phone, or maybe it's, it's a, a leaf twirling down in the wind from the tree as the season begins to change and and to have their awareness renewed uh, one of my favorite quotes which i've used as an epigraph on an early book is from the british poet william blake and he says if the if the doors of perception that is our sense our eyes our ears all the ways in which we take in the world if the doors of perception were cleansed, we would see the world as it is, infinite. Mm. And that's true. Uh, the world, everything in it, is endlessly fascinating and miraculous. So in some, you know, some of the things that you write about are those everyday miracles um, that are part of our reality that we take for granted that you're talking about. And... Um, but some of them, you also have an element of, I think, what we would call magical realism Yes. in the book as well. And that can be very tricky to um, pull off successfully, believably, which I think you've done. You've definitely done that. Yeah. Well, well I'm, I'm glad you feel that about that, the, the magical or fantastic element in the book. So I'll take, take an example. As you know from having read it, one of the stories is simply called Snow. And Gordon Mills, the husband, the central figure really of the book, along with his wife Mabel, Gordon Mills works for the city maintenance department. And on July 4th, what he's been assigned to do is to clean up after the clean up the streets with a street sweeper after the July 4th parade. That's what his assignment is. But when he wakes up, <clears throat> the children uh, call and tell him that it's snowing out. Now, this is July 4th in southern Indiana. And instead of saying, oh, it can't possibly be snowing on July 4th, it's too hot, etc., it never snows on July 4th, the kids open the garage door, and sure enough, a whole bunch of white fluff falls, it's piled up outside, it's covered his truck, it's covered the streets and sidewalk and yard, it's very deep, but it turns out not to be cold, it's like snowflakes, but it's not cold, it's maybe more like um, styrofoam or something, and 
Gordon Mills, being Gordon Mills, doesn't doesn't think, oh, how weird, this is strange, how, how can I account for this? What he thinks is, oh, I have got to go to the garage and get the snowplow because <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to plow the streets to clear them for the July 4th parade. And so that's what he does. He he he, he can't. The streets are impassable. You can't drive in them. So he trudges to the city maintenance garage, which is within walking distance, gets in a truck and starts plowing. And pretty soon, other workers, other city workers, are driving other snowplows. Okay, so the magical thing there is here's this material that looks like snow and acts like snow and but and and uh but it doesn't feel like snow. It's kind of magical snow. <laughs> so that's okay, that's magical realism, that's fantasy and the reader might say, "Oh, come on, get off it." But what I hope is the re- is the reader thinks, you know, actual snow. Think about actual snow. If you've ever been anywhere where it has snowed and you start seeing the flakes coming down, every one, we're told by the scientist, every single snowflake is distinct. It has its own six-part intricate design. And it might be just a little flurry or it might end up be a blizzard and put three feet on the ground. Why can't we marvel at the phenomenon of snow, actual snow. And because I can remember as a little kid growing up in northern Ohio, I loved snow. I didn't have to get to work. (laughs) When I got school age, you know, maybe school would be canceled. All kids who live in the north are always hoping for (laughs) snow days, right? Right. Well, uh, but, but as I can remember vividly as a kid thinking, oh, this is so cool, this this white stuff that comes down and you can build forts and throw snowballs. So what I, in other words, my fantastic snow is not any more fantastic than actual snow. (laughs) Well, that is true. And my, my grandkids who live in Texas and I go there a lot, but they have not come here to Iowa very often. And when they have in recent, like in the, in their memory, it was always in the winter, like at Christmas time or, and, and so they were, we were planning a trip this summer. It didn't end up happening, but they were very disappointed to find out that it did not snow here in July. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, well, we don't want to come then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was supposed to always have snow. Yep. Always have snow. Well, I can give another, another example from the book that of magic realism, I suppose. There's a folk le- folk legend. Many people will have heard it that there's there are alligators in the sewer system, and just imagine if an alligator came up through the the pipes beneath your toilet, took a big <laughs> bite out of your butt while you're on the toilet. Okay, so you know it's just a just an old urban legend. Well, I thought, well, let's just put alligators in the sewer system of Limestone, Indiana, and have Gordon Mills be charged with the responsibility of getting rid of them. So I take a legend, if you will, or a kind of folk story about alligators in the sewer system and make it literal. I put alligators in the sewer system, <laughs> and then the whole story is built around Gordon's dealing with this uh, this this problem, the People complain to the mayor, and the mayor complains to the maintenance department. The maintenance department assigns Gordon the task of of uh, getting rid of the getting alligators. rid of the alligators, which which he does, and they they flee southern Indiana and make their way all the way back down to the Gulf Coast. <laughs> You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Scott Russell Sanders, author of Small Marvels. I I, um, didn't get, you know, you mentioned earlier that that everything took place in one year. I didn't actually get that when I, from reading it, because there's so much. I think one one signal of that is the kids' ages don't change. Mm. Uh, Or they, they all have a birthday over the course of the year, so the youngest goes from six to seven, and the 12 year old goes to 13, and so forth. Uh, because the fantastic or the magical aspect of the book has come up, I want to mention something else that's important to me. And 
they're related themes. Uh, one is marriage. The, book, the stories are in part about marriage. Lots of marriages are miserable and break up for good reasons. Uh, I'm certainly, I certainly understand that many people make one another happy or hurt one another, and they're better off parted. But the fact is, there are actually a lot of durable marriages in the world, and one, these don't make it into movies or or TV shows or novels very often. That is, marriages which are good marriages, where both both parties, the husband and wife, or the husband and husband, or wife and wife, any any kind of marriage, there are many marriages which are mutually supportive and loving and fulfilling and durable. And Gordon Mills and Mabel Mills happen to have one such marriage. And so part of what the book is about is about that possibility. It doesn't mean that they don't squabble. It doesn't mean that they aren't different in personalities and outlooks. Uh, Mabel is very clearly the, the, the leader of the household, and, and Gordon is her supporting character. So it's partly about marriage. Um, it's partly about uh, generational care. Gordon and Mabel caring for their four kids who were at four very different stages in, you know, in childhood uh, from age six to age 19, two boys, two girls. So partly the book is about parenting and about the, the problems of it, the challenges of it. And partly it's about elder care. There are three living grandparents. The, Gordon's father died in a quarrying accident. But the other three grandparents are alive, and they're living with the family because they can't afford to live apart from the family. It's, a, it's true of a lot of uh, households. Uh, so there are three generations under one roof, and they have friction. They have squabbles. They get mad at one another. They're human beings, but they also love one another. And that lo the underlying love across those three generations is one of the themes of the book. And it's it's a reminder of what's possible for humans. Uh, it's, and it is not the kind of story that very often gets told because much art, film, fiction, drama of different sorts, much art is about strife. It's about conflict. It's about, often it's about violence because it's gripping. And harmony or forgiveness and all the compassion and kindness are, are not gripping, but they're actually what we desire in our lives. Well, there is something about how you tell these stories that is gripping. Um, and to be honest, a lot of times I, when I get pitched um, short story collections from um, small presses, um, some of them are wonderful, but sometimes they're just they're so literary and there's just not much plot and and I find them kind of boring. And that was what I was anticipating. <laughs> and that's not what I got. Well, good. I'm what, glad you feel that. What I you know, one, one of the among the influences on this book, and I hope maybe a factor in your finding these stories engaging, is I love folk tales. I love love folk tales. Uh, this is sort of fast development. Uh, one day there was a miller and his wife who lived by the stream and they had a beautiful daughter and one day a prince came by and his horse, you know, and just and the story <laughs> goes, right? It's just, it's really, it's, it's uh, it develops quickly. And, and it, it, the story has, a story may have classic elements. Two people fall in love or somebody's on a quest and uh, and so forth and that all of those patterns and that speed of narration appeals to me and i think this book has those qualities i certainly aspired uh, to give those qualities to it so that the the reader can feel that they're going somewhere and they're going somewhere pretty quickly it's not going to take 
600 pages to get a, a <laughs> sense of how this turns out. It's going to come pretty quickly. Uh, it, I, I tell stories because I love stories, not just because I love to hear my voice on the page. Mm-hmm. And I suppose some writing, you call it, you know literary writing, uh, is really more about showing off one's prose than about exploring the human heart. And I'm interested in the human heart, and I hope that the prose is interesting. I hope it is seems fresh and not full of uh, predictable phrasing. But really, my focus is always on the human heart and how that can be explored through stories. I think that's a wonderful um, goal to have, and I think you've done a wonderful job with it. Scott, would you read um, a story from Small Marvels for us? So here's here's the opening of a story called Centaur. Readers or listeners, rather, I remember centaurs are a combined creature that has a horse body and a torso, human torso. And uh, they're, they're known in mythology as being quite raunchy. <laughs> <laughs> so here's just the opening of that, and you get a little background about the family. Every now and again, when the darkness of the world seeps into me and I grow weary of writing about private and public and planetary troubles, I make up a story about a jack-of-all-trades named Gordon Mills who works on the city maintenance crew in Limestone, Indiana. He lives with his feisty wife, Mabel, their four children, at least one of whom suffers a crisis on any given day and the three surviving grandparents all crammed into an old house that falls apart as fast as Gordon can fix it. You won't find their hometown on a map, but you might have visited the place in dreams, for peculiar things happen there, although no one in the Mills household, least of all Gordon, ever notices the strangeness. Limestone, Indiana, a city the mapmakers blithely ignore, is named for the bedrock on which it was built, a rock that formed on the bottom of an ancient sea as a hardened pudding of crushed cells. Just as water gives birth to limestone, so the rain and snow melt that seeps down from the surface slowly dissolve it, carving out sinkholes, tunnels, and chambers bristling with stalactites. The caves riddling the limestone under limestone are not famous, like Mammoth or Carlsbad or Altamira, but what they lack in reputation, they make up for in abundance, for they are as numerous as the air pockets in a loaf of sourdough bread. One of those caves deserves to be better known. Maybe it should even get written up in the road atlas, because for a while, not long ago, it was home to a herd of rare beasts. There were bats, of course, and blind crayfish, eyeless salamanders, albino crickets, and shy spiders, the sorts of animals you might expect to find in any dark, dank grotto. But in addition, this cave provided refuge for a great many less common creatures, such as unicorns, griffins, dragons, and centaurs. Except for the phoenix, which was solitary, they all hung out in pairs, each satyr with a nymph, for example, and each harpy with a hippogriff. What they did in the dark was anyone's guess. Well, that's the opening of the story called Centaur. And Gordon is commissioned by the city to keep the, keep the cave clean and uh, to install a gate to protect these uh, visiting creatures, the satyrs and nymphs and centaurs and phoenix and dragons, because the city wants to turn it into a tourist attraction. Okay. And, <laughs> and uh, do you want to read a little more from it? or? Sure, sure. Okay. So the following, so after what they did in the dark was anyone's guess. The mayor and city council planned to make the cave a tourist attraction as soon as the budget allowed them to pave a road to the entrance and build a gift shop. 
In the meantime, they kept the location a secret so gawkers wouldn't go barging in and disturb the beasts. Aside from the mayor and council members, one of the few people who knew about the place was Gordon Mills, who, as part of his duties on the city maintenance crew, was ordered to install a gate of steel bars at the mouth of the cave and clean the interior twice a year in spring and fall. The bars allowed bats to fly in and out on their nightly errands, and a spare key hanging from a hook just inside the gate allowed the larger inhabitants to come and go as they pleased. The cave was filthier in the spring after the creatures had been cooped up inside all winter. Despite their horny scales and thick fur, they could not bear the cold, having evolved in warmer climes, so they ventured out mostly between April and October. Even in the warmer months, they didn't wander far, wishing to avoid encounters with dog walkers or mushroom hunters or wandering lovers who might sound the alarm and have them banished. The beasts had already fled from one country after another, scorned by skeptics or driven away by mobs. The cave harbored smells from the many places they had left, olive groves, peach orchards, maple marble quarries, mossy riverbanks, candlelit cathedrals, trash-strewn alleys, dusty libraries, and battlefields. Desperate to find a safe haven, they wound up in the backwoods of Indiana, where they hoped eventually to blend in with the local wildlife. And one more paragraph. While cleaning the cave, Gordon learned all about their history and habits, mainly from the centaurs who wanted to practice their English. They spoke with an accent, of course, being foreigners, but he could understand them well enough. They knew geography backward and forward from all their wandering. Gordon had never heard of half of the places they'd been kicked out of. From what the centaurs let slip about their escapades with women, he could see why folks might not welcome them in the neighborhood. He certainly wouldn't want them anywhere near his daughters. <laughs> and that was Scott Russell Sanders reading from Small Marvels. And just, you know, we've talked a lot about the kind of the magical elements, but there's a lot of parts of the story that are um, more everyday um, yes. reality as well. As well. Well, yeah, I mentioned that one of the, my interests in the book is marriage, and there's uh, the kind of bickerings that, that come up, and also moodiness. Uh, Gordon Mills, like any fictional character, uh, in, well, I suppose this is true for most writers of fiction, our characters borrow traits from a lot of different people uh, that we've known over, over our lives, and Gordon Mills, for example, has a lot of qualities from my father. But one quality he has from me is he's extremely moody. <laughs> and he, he he gets down in the dumps. Mm. And he's not somebody who really has much insight into the sources of his own emotions. He just feels what he feels. He doesn't examine them. He doesn't think about them. He just feels what he feels. And when he gets down in the dumps, Mabel has to figure out ways to get him up out of the dumps. And sometimes sometimes he does it by making favorite foods or uh, by joking with him in some way. But in one story, uh, and one of the signals of his gloominess is his beard, which is ordinarily uh, sort of grayish or sandy colored. Uh, His beard turns blue, not deep. (laughs) vivid blue but it gets sort of bluish so he literally has the blues and it it shows in his in his beard and so everybody in the household begins to tiptoe around gordon when his beard takes on that tinge of blue because they he doesn't get angry he's just he's depressed i suppose he's in the dumps and the only one finally who can get him out of the dumps when he when the food doesn't work and joking with him doesn't work is his, is the little boy, uh, the the youngest child, who's six at the beginning of the book and seven at the end of the book, and his name is Danny, and he loves knock knock jokes, and he goes out into the garage and he 
he starts he can't quite see his father because in addition to the blue blueness of the beard Gordon's dark moods surround him with a kind of fog and so Danny can at first can only vaguely see the shape of his father through the fog of gloom and Danny starts asking him knock-knock jokes and initially Gordon doesn't want to respond he's grumpy he just doesn't want to be bothered and He's kind of almost kind of determined. I feel bad, and I'm going to keep feeling bad. Thanks very much. But eventually, he can't resist, and he starts answering the knock-knock jokes from Danny. <laughs> and by the end of it, Gordon has come out of his gloom. So it's there's a little magic there, the blue beard <laughs> and the fog and so forth. But but the fundamental thing is is what it's like to live with a really moody person. And the challenge that that faces to anybody else who happens to be in the household, and most of the time Gordon is very up and you know eager for things. He gets excited about projects, and he any time somebody wants him to make something, he gets all excited. He likes to build things for people, like a bluebird box for his his twelve year old daughter who is nuts about birds. Uh, so most of the time he's he's up and gets excited and enthusiastic. But every once in a while, the world gets him down, maybe something at work, maybe something in the newspaper. So the underlying reality of moodiness is something most of us feel. If we, if we ourselves are not moody, we know somebody. Maybe we're married to somebody or have a parent who is, who is moody. Um, and... There are other things that the kids try to to uh, plan a surprise uh, wedding anniversary celebration for their parents, for Gordon and Mabel. And there's nothing magical about that particular story except the affection that the children feel for for their parents. And the last story, the last chapter in the book has has nothing magical in it at all there's no, nothing fantastic in it the family which hardly can ever go away on a vacation because there simply isn't money plus there are nine uh, nine human beings to organize but they managed to rent a cottage in the indiana dunes on lake michigan they managed to rent a cottage for a week and they're going to go up there all nine of them in a van and they're driving up there in a driving rainstorm. And Gordon, against Mabel's advice, when Mabel snoozes off, decides to get off the interstate and take a shortcut. <laughs> and the shortcut leads him on a back road where the van comes over a hill and down into a swale, down into a valley, and suddenly hits water. It's it's dark out, and they couldn't see it. And the van stalls out, and there's no way it's going to start because it's, the engine's flooded with water. Uh, so Gordon has got to figure out how to get nine people out of the van, up the hill, and then somehow to safety. Uh, and then he, a way, a way uh, evolves, uh, which invo- and includes the a truck driver who has stopped because of the water and who picks up the whole family, puts them in his extended cab. (laughs) And there's nothing magical about that story except as a reminder of the human capacity for cooperation and kindness. And I keep coming back to this idea of kindness because most human beings most of the time are considerate to one another, are helpful when they can be our neighborly and we forget that because the headlines are full of news about people who are the exact opposite of all those things selfish deceitful greedy often violent dishonest uh, and that's what's in the headlines and i understand why it's in the headlines but if <laughs> If most humans weren't most of the time decent to those around them, including members of their own family, our species would have died out a long time ago. You know, I think about that a lot because sometimes 
like our our systems of our economic systems our systems of government are are kind of built around the idea that um that people are greedy and and but most people aren't it's just that it's if if 90% of the people are are kind and want to be cooperative and want to do right for each other the the 10% that don't often end up with the power because they yes. don't care what they do and who they hurt and how do we <laughs> you know i i think we see that in our country today that, we certainly do that yes. the majority of people are really good and kind and and want to help others and want to to um, have make sure everybody has health care and but the one the the minority seems to have more power well it's almost a truism that people who end end up in power uh, they do it for a variety of motives and there certainly are people in government and corporate leadership and religious leadership and so forth there certainly are people who, whose motives I think are good and whose hearts are good and who really want to be of use to others. But unfortunately, and that's the 10%, whatever the figure might be, that seems reasonable. There, there are people who want power just to have power and they want money just to have money. Uh, and they don't care what they have to do to get it, to get it and keep it. And, uh, so uh, a dismaying fraction of the people who end up in Congress, say, or in a state legislature or at the head of corporations, a dismaying portion of them are, in fact, motivated by greed and self-importance and just a desire to lord it over other people. And I don't have a solution to that. Obviously, it's not just true in America. One sees evidence of it around the world. Uh, the, right. Our, right. Our, our ancestors uh, tried to create a political system in which, you know, which was a, an experiment, and it's still an ongoing experiment, which we call a, a, a democratic republic, and we can all recognize that there are many ways in which the society we live in is not a democracy it's a it's an oligarchy it's mm. it's a place that's that tends to be ruled by people who have the greatest financial means um, but still there are constraints there's a legal system there are uh, other sources of of, of influence um, there are in the United States hundreds of thousands of nonprofit organizations, as as you're well aware, of course. But everybody listening to this podcast lives within the range of one or more, maybe dozens of nonprofit organizations that are motivated by the desire to help people, absolutely, in one way or another, to feed them, to house them, to get them medical care, to to teach them literacy. Uh, to help look after their children. And when I despair, as I sometimes do, of our society at the national level, that is the level where the stakes are the highest and the people who are most greedy for power and most ruthless in seeking it and exercising it tend to uh, gravitate, when I when I tend to when I feel despair about what can be done at the national level or in my state of Indiana, which yeah. where a minority of the state is really really backward. Yeah. Uh, um, and Indiana is not unique in that regard. I, I remind myself of all of the local efforts, and to some extent national scale and international scale nonprofit organizations that are devoted to human well-being and to the well-being of our planet, to the health of our planet. So my one of my medicines I take is to volunteer for our local land trust for example. Ah. And to and to donate donate books for auctions for the school system and to give pro bono, you know, free talks and presentations and readings for organizations at fundraisers and and to do what I can within the sphere, the small, modest sphere of of my own world, to 
um, to act in light of my values and in spite of the ugliness and cruelty that so often dominates our news. There's, there's so much that you said there that interested me. One of the one of the downsides, though, of all these nonprofits is that they're it's piecemeal, and so for somebody who needs, who is suffering and needs help, how do those nonprofits find the people who need help? How do the people who need help find the resources? That's you know one of the challenges that we face in relying on this this network of people really trying to do good and you know why if it why i feel like it's something that the government could do better at um i agree entirely monica healthcare is a is a case in point absolutely absolutely our healthcare system costs twice as much as the next most expensive you know per capita costs twice as much as the next most expensive healthcare system in the world, and that's Germany, uh, and it, its outcome is mediocre. Uh, and getting rich, worse. <laughs> yes, and getting and getting worse. And getting worse. And I, I agree that, yeah. that that nonprofits are doing much in a piecemeal way that local, state, and federal governments should be could be doing much more efficiently and uh, and and effectively. So it's a kind of stopgap. The other yeah. problem. Or shortcoming, I suppose, of nonprofits is is that, as everybody knows, they all have to scramble for money, and mm-hmm. so they spend a tremendous amount of their energy and budget raising money so they can keep operating. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, the, the the number of appeals for money that come into our mailbox, and I'm sure your mailbox, and the listeners' mailboxes, the number of appeals that come are, are is really daunting. And they're they're all worthy causes, and they're all competing for the goodwill and the extra dollars that um, people people of goodwill uh, can can provide. I I do think that local many solutions can be most effective at the local scale. So. Some of the things like land trusts, which tend to be... Which is one of the things that I devote quite a bit of um, my resources to, is yes. the Southern Iowa Land Trust. Um, I've and, been, and land trusts across the country yes. do excellent work, and in many cases, I think, do work more efficiently than, say, the federal government could do it, because they can look at smaller parcels of land, they know the area better, Often their staff, most of their staff is volunteer. Can you can you explain what what a land trust does for people who might not be familiar with the concept? There are hundreds of them around the country. I think actually there may be over a thousand now land trusts, and they there's a range of of operations. But the basic model is land trusts that have some money can actually buy lands that, for example, a a wetland that otherwise might be drained and plowed. Uh, They can actually buy the land outright and protect it and keep it as wildlife habitat. But more often, they're protecting land that the landowners wish to have protected. For example, a farmer in Iowa might have a forest on his or her property and would like that forest to be preserved instead of being cut down. And they can arrange with a local land trust by donating something called a conservation easement, which actually protects that forest in the future. It it goes on the deed to the property and can protect that forest from being cut down. And in exchange, the landowner, the farmer, receives a deduction on his or her uh, taxes for having made a charitable donation. The charitable na- donation essentially is calculated by how much that farmer could have earned by simply selling off the lot, selling off the trees. Uh, and and so the land trust, um, the land trust, is a, a, a means for people who live in a given region in southern Iowa, for example, in, in your case, who live in a certain region and would like to protect lands that they have ownership of 
and would like to protect it after they're gone. Uh-huh. Uh, and and uh, the land trust is an organization that holds that in trust, and ideally the goal is in perpetuity, that is forever. Uh, we, we all know that the future is uncertain, but a land trust is one of the most durable, uh, dependable mechanisms for protecting land uh, that I'm aware of. And again, uh, it can be very sensitive to, for example, if, if a farmer wants to keep land in farming, uh, it can protect land as farmland. Yeah, the it Southern Iowa Land Trust is protecting land as organic farmland. Yes, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and because otherwise some of that organic farmland could become shopping malls, strip right. malls right. Or, or subdivisions. And uh, land trusts are ways, and they're, they're locally based, they're nonpartisan. Uh, I've met people in land trusts who are across the whole political spectrum. Um, they're, they're not and they're not liberal, they're not conservative. Well, I would say they're all in the rudiment meaning of conservative, and they're trying to conserve, <laughs> exactly. conserve uh, habitat, uh, conserve farmland from development, uh, conserve forest land, right. uh, and ultimately conserve places that human beings can be renewed by, can take a walk in or go fishing in or uh, just uh, camp in. Hike in. So, Scott, you might be interested to know that my next guest that will um, be on after you on Writer's Voices is Neil D. Hamilton, who wrote The Land Remains. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I have not read the book. I've read about it. Yeah, and he has a whole chapter in there on land trusts. Um, the book is focused. Well, it's a wonderful organization, yeah, and your listeners, yeah. almost wherever they live in the United States, there's a land trust uh, that is busy trying to protect land in their in their region. So, Scott, there's a couple other things I wanted to talk about. One is that, you know, Gordon Mills is a is a working class hero. Yes. And um, I was thinking about that and and a very simple man in a way, not, you know, not well educated, not not as, you know, not sophisticated. we don't find books about men like that very often anymore, do we? No, we don't, and I appreciate your bringing that up. Uh, those are the people I grew up with. I grew up in uh, an industrial and agricultural area in northeastern Ohio, and it was true of my father. He had one year of college. Uh, he was a very intelligent man but um, and had tremendous practical intelligence that is he could fix things he could look at any machine and and immediately understand how it worked Uh, and my mother had one year of college they both had to drop out of college during the depression my dad grew up on a cotton farm in mississippi and my mother grew up uh, in inner city chicago and both of them were tremendously skillful they could grow food. They could preserve food. They could cook food. My mother always started from raw ingredients to cook. She taught me some cooking. My dad taught me carpentry skills, plumbing skills, electrical wiring. And I really value and honor people who are, people who are skillful with their hands. And those hands may be making bread or a weaving or a sweater or they may be making a, a house, or they may be repairing a, 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 an automobile or a television set. I, I really respect people who have those kinds of manual skills, and I knew them well. That is, those are, those are the people I grew up among and in the back roads of Ohio, and they were also what most of my schoolmates went on to be. Now, relatively few people that I went to high school with in a little rural high school went on to college. Mm. Most of them uh, took jobs in local factories or they became carpenters or plumbers or policemen and policewomen and so forth. And Gordon is a member of that, the, the, the kind of the more or less invisible people who keep the world running, 
and that includes women, of course, as well as men. Uh, the people who serve serve meals at at uh, schools, lunches, right? Fix right. the meals and right. and serve the kids. The people who drive the school buses, the people who keep your who check your furnace and make sure it's tuned up before the winter heating season. Uh, the people who repair your car or built your house. Uh, those are people who keep the world running, and there's not much literature about them, and there are two reasons for that, I think, two main <laughs> reasons. One reason is most people who write books grew up among people who who read books, and, and uh, you know, they, their parents had college, college degrees, and maybe their grandparents had college degrees. Uh, well, I'm a first-generation college student in my family. I have an older sister who was the first one in our extended family to go to college and get a degree, and I was the second. Uh, and and I got a Ph.D. from the University of Cambridge in England and, and I'm a, you know, a distinguished professor at a university, but I have never, ever lost my sense of connection to the kind of people I grew up among, and that included miners and steel workers and tire makers and farmers, uh, and uh, I'm, not glor- I'm not glorifying them. I'm just remembering them, and, and I'm, they deserve to be the subjects of art as much as people. How, how many <laughs> novels have you read where the protagonist is a university English professor or <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, yeah. is a lawyer or a doctor or a business person? Well, those are all fine subjects. Uh, you know that's fine to have characters whose ba- who's, those are their backgrounds, but the the actual uh, maintenance of our world and the structures that we live in and the vehicles that we drive and the food that we eat, that work is carried out by people who very rarely make it into literature. And Gordon Mills and and uh, his his wife, for that matter, she's a classic homemaker. Uh, she's got nine people to feed and clothe and and get delivered places and so forth and, and care for. And that is more than a full-time job. Absolutely. But there are certain circles in America where Mabel Mills, as a homemaker, would not be respected, would, would be th- thought of as not having uh, fulfilled her promise. And I think Mabel would quarrel with that view. <laughs> I think more, Mabel so- would feel quite firmly and would state quite firmly that, she was a highly skillful person who had managed a very complicated, emotionally and logistically complicated household and uh, kept everybody well-fed and healthy. Well, Scott, we're about out of, out of time. Okay. Um, I just wanted you, you mentioned that you had, before we started recording, that you had um, spoken to your granddaughter's class at Indiana State University yes. this morning. Can you just tell us briefly how that came to be? It was fun. The class has been assigned to read one of my books, as happens, not just here, but other universities. And my granddaughter signed up for the class, and then she got the syllabus, and there was a book of mine on it. (laughs) And she mentioned to the teacher after the first session that that was her grandfather, because her last name is different. It's it's her daughter's married name. And so the teacher was tickled by this, and he he wrote me and asked me if I would come visit the class. And the class is is about outdoor education, and it met in a wood in a clearing in a woods here on our campus. And so I just visited that class this morning and oh. talked about the book and which book was talked it? About the what book was it? Yeah. It's a book called Staying Put. Mm. Staying Put, making a home. In a restless world. Wow. Well, I want to thank you so much for for joining us today, Scott. This was a delight. It was a delight to me too, <laughs> and I appreciate you having me on. And I always close with a quote, and I think I found a good one for this for today from Willa Cather: "Where there is great love, there are always miracles." I love that. I love Willa Gather and I love that. Thank you and see you all next week on Red.